We interrupt your broadcast to bring you an episode from the Stephen or Else Network of Truly Epic Podcast. Find more shows at StephenOrElse.com. The Beyonder arrives on Earth, the Molecule Man watches a bit of TV, and Captain America goes for a ride in a taxi cab. All that and more today on Event or Else. Here it is, folks. Press your luck and grind some chuck. It's time for Event or Else, the podcast where I go through most every major Marvel and DC event, one issue at a time, one episode at a time, because I got nowhere else to go. I got nothing else. I'm your host. My name is Steven. And here we go. With season number three. And you know what that means, right? You over there on the stationary bike. Tell me what it means then. Don't know. Don't just nod your head like you know. Tell me. All right. She's not going to tell us. What about you? Yeah, you walking around the track. Apparently all my listeners exercise while they listen. Anyway, I'm going to abandon that and just go on with the show. A new season means a new event. And for season three... Oh my goodness, we got a doozy for you. From Marvel Comics, we're going to talk about Secret Wars 2. This is a nine-issue event. It ran from April to December of 1985. It is, of course, the sequel to Marvel Superhero Secret Wars, which we talked about in Season 1. And from what I've been able to find online, this would be the first time Marvel published an event in which the reader had to read all of the tie-ins to get the full story. Now, as you know, I don't read any of the tie-ins for this podcast. So, yeah, this should be an interesting one. By the way, in case you're wondering, there appears to be at least 33 tie-in issues, possibly more. It really depends on who you ask and where you look. Most places, from marvelfandom.com to other sites that give you the reading order, of this event show 42 books in all. That includes the nine issues of the main title, which would leave us with 33 tie-in issues. And that's a lot of tie-in issues. I don't know how many Crisis on Infinite Earths had, which we talked about last season, but I was able to get through those 12 issues without having to read any of the tie-ins. And I still understood everything that I needed to understand in that event. But will that happen here? Am I going to get everything I need to know from just the core nine issues? Eh, I don't know. Let's find out. This issue sports a cover date of July 1985, but it hit the shelves on April 16th. And the title of this issue is Earthfall. It was written by Jim Shooter, penciled by Al Milgram. The inks were by Steve Lealoha. Letters by Joe Rosen, and the colorist was Christy Scheel. Now, before we begin, I just want to give you a bit of trivia that has nothing at all to do with this story in any way. But our inker on this issue, Steve Lealoha, has a G.I. Joe character named after him. Torpedo from G.I. Joe, his civilian identity, is uh, Edward Lealoha, named after the famed inker by Larry Hama. And that's that's pretty cool. And it's actually something I didn't know until, seriously, just moments before I started recording as I was gathering some information for this issue. Anyway, let's get into it. As the issue opens, he is traveling across the infinite void of space, seeking a particular galaxy and within a certain planet. He lands, less than gracefully, outside of a Denver, Colorado suburb with a great kaboom. In a nearby apartment building, Owen Reese, also known as the Molecule Man, rushes to his window, seeking the source of the sound. Finding nothing, he tells his girlfriend, Marsha Rosenberg, also known as Volcana, that it must have been a truck backfiring, though he could have sworn that he saw a flash of light up there in them thar hills. However, with some encouragement from Marsha, Owen dismisses the sound and joins her on the couch 
to watch Hogan's Heroes. But suddenly, the picture on the TV turns to snow as a loud vacuum shakes the building. Rushing once more to the window, they see great chunks of earth flying past. The two use their powers to try and contain the damage when Owen realizes that the light he saw in them Nar Hills must be behind the flying chunks of earth. And so, using his power over all molecules, Owen brings the entire hillside to them. As the hillside arrives, there is a shadowy figure atop it, someone that Owen recognizes, and that recognition terrifies him. Half a world away on Muir Island in Scotland, Professor Charles Xavier wakes, screaming the name, Beyonder! Moira McTaggart and the members of the New Mutants rush into the room, and Professor X tries to get Moira to warn the X-Men in America. She's too busy, however, trying to calm him down, worried that he will only exacerbate the injuries he sustained in recent issues of the X-Men and the New Mutants. What does exacerbate mean? It means, um, to make things worse. Right. But Chuck's not having any of it, and in desperation, uses his mental powers to warn someone, anyone, whomever he's able to reach, about the cosmic threat to all humanity. The strain, however, is just a bit too much, and Professor X passes out. At that very moment, in a 747 bound from London's Heathrow Airport to New York's JFK, Captain America sits in coach, in full costume, with everyone staring and pointing and talking when suddenly he receives Professor X's mental warning. The Beyonder is on Earth, Western U.S. The world, the universe is in terrible danger. Hear me, believe. Realizing the potential threat that the Beyonder poses on Earth, Cap, using his status as an Avenger, with a little help from his Avengers priority card, has the pilots divert the plane to Los Angeles. After explaining the situation to the upset passengers, Cap returns to the cockpit and thinks over his previous encounter with the Beyonder. Back in Colorado, Owen Reese has invited a strange man into his apartment. The man, who sits casually on the couch, is wearing a patchwork outfit made from bits and pieces of costume and armor copied from the various heroes and villains whom the Beyonder had magicked onto Battleworld, which isn't a coincidence, considering that the strange man, well, he's the Beyonder. Owen Reese quickly learns that the Beyonder has come to Earth seeking to understand the nature of their reality. Owen tries to explain that the best way to understand how the world works is through experience. The Beyonder decides to take his advice and, at Marsh's suggestion, teleports away to Los Angeles, but not before Owen suggests that he might want to take on a less conspicuous form. Meanwhile, in North Salem, New York, at Charles Xavier's School for Gifted Youngsters, Nightcrawler and Colossus meet with Magneto, having been summoned there by Professor Xavier to deal with the Beyonder. As their conversation becomes tense, Wolverine, Rogue, Shadowcat, and Rachel Summers burst in through the window and attempt to attack Magneto. Colossus and Nightcrawler stop them, and explain that Magneto has come to them as an ally, not as an enemy. After explanations are made, Wolverine agrees to allow Magneto to accompany them on their Beyonder hunt, but he intends on watching him pretty darn closely. With their jet damage, they all pile into one of the professor's limousines, and Magneto, using his mastery of magnetism, lifts it into the air to carry them across the country. In the meantime, the Beyonder has arrived in Hollywood. He has taken the form of living energy and happens past the home of an irate writer named Stuart Cadwell and his girlfriend, Marion. Hearing Cadwell's angry phone call with his agent, where he berates the censorship he faces with his writing, the Beyonder appears before them, taking the form of Owen Reese, the Molecule Man. He tells the two that he desires to understand that he is incomplete and wishes to know all, and that he can do anything. Well, to prove that he isn't just boasting, the Beyonder turns Cadwell's desk and everything in it into a pile of apples. 
Elsewhere in L.A., Magneto tracks down other members of the New Mutants who have been forced to fight in a mutant arena. Magneto bursts into the arena to recover the New Mutants and their allies. However, only Cannonball, Magic, Dazzler, and Lila Cheney go with him. When they try to convince the X-Men to go back for the others, Magneto tells them that there ain't enough time. And soon, they are on their way once again to find the Beyonder. Meanwhile, back in Hollywood, Cadwell tells the Beyonder that if he wants to see desire made into reality, to see wish fulfillment in action, then he should give him some power. The Beyonder complies by transforming Cadwell's Shazam Award into a lightning-shaped sword and makes Cadwell into a superhero. Giving himself the name Thunder Sword, Cadwell smashes his way out of his apartment and promptly jumps on his flying steed, Boromir, who had materialized out of thin air. He then rides off to get revenge against those who have undermined his creativity. And as he rides away, the Beyonder decides to follow along. The X-Men are not far away when they witness Thundersword attacking the NBC studios. When Cadwell notices them, he attacks their car, totaling it. Wondering if this man is the Beyonder, Magneto sends Cannonball, Shadowcat, Rogue, and Nightcrawler after him, only to be knocked aside with ease. Wolverine and Colossus stop Cannonball from harming innocent bystanders when he crashes through a McBurger fast food joint. Inside, Thundersword uses his weapon to destroy the place because, well, because he doesn't like their food. This causes a grease fire to spread to a nearby hotel, forcing Rachel to use her telepathic powers to wake everyone inside and make them flee. Meanwhile, on the freeway, Captain America is riding in a cab, racing to the scene of the battle, while at the same time, news of the battle reaches the headquarters of the West Coast Avengers. Present are Tony Stark and Jim Rhodes. And as Tony is at a crucial phase in the building of his new Iron Man armor, he sends Jim to deal with the threat, having him take the old red and gold armor. Captain America arrives at the scene in the nick of time and saves a woman and child from being buried alive by great falling bits of burning hotel. Then, working together with the X-Men, New Mutants, Dazzler, and Lila Cheney, Cap manages to hold Thundersword at bay so that Magneto can toss a number of cars at him. When Thundersword strikes the cars, he sends debris flying all over the area, one piece striking Lila in the head. As Rachel notices this, she also detects a powerful presence watching the battle. She reaches out with her mind and detects the Beyonder. Once discovered, the Beyonder just makes himself visible to everybody there. He then takes interest in Alana Rasputin, the new mutant known as Magic, and so reaches into her to bring out her dark child form. Horrified at having her full demonic form exposed to her friends, Alana teleports away, taking Shadowcat, Dazzler, Rachel, and Cannonball with her. Noticing that the kids have vanished, Wolverine rushes the Beyonder in a fury with the X-Men trying to stop him, leaving Captain America to battle Thundersword alone. Wolverine slashes at the Beyonder's face and stabs him in the gut with his adamantium claws. The X-Men pull him off, and Lila, worried that the Beyonder might destroy them, teleports them all away. This distracts Captain America long enough for Thundersword to knock him down. However, before he can kill Cap, Iron Man arrives and blasts him from behind before pulling Cap away. Swooping back around, Captain America tosses his shield at Thundersword's arm, knocking the sword from his hand, which changes back into his Shazam Award, and Cadwell loses his amazing abilities. The Beyonder by this point has realized that the only way to understand desire is to experience it for himself. And as Cadwell begs him to restore his powers, the Beyonder seemingly vanishes. When Cadwell breaks down into tears as he fully realizes just what he has done, Captain America leaves him to Iron Man to turn over to the authorities. And, as the issue ends, leaves the scene to resume his journey east, back to New York unaware that he is secretly being followed by the Beyonder.
Oh, <laughs> uh, by the way, that synopsis was taken from marvelfandom.com and had bits of it rewritten by yours truly. All right, so let's talk about this issue. If, as you are listening to me go through the synopsis, if you thought that, wow, there is just a lot of stuff happening and yet not a lot of story at the same time, I think you'd be right. I think you would be right. If we look at the cover, the cover just might be the best thing there is in this entire issue. It was drawn by John Byrne with inks by Terry Austin. And it's one of those covers that is very iconic. If you were reading comics at the time, you probably recognize the cover. You've probably seen it before. It's got the X-Men and the New Mutants and Captain America, Magneto. Professor X is there for some reason, and they are facing the camera. They're, they're basically looking kind of beyond the reader, and we see a shadow on the ground before them, the shadow of a man, and inside that shadow are the words, who is the Beyonder? This is one of those covers that I don't want to say anything bad about Al Milgram's art. I actually rather enjoy his art. I have enjoyed many comics that he has done in the past. And really, art-wise, there's not a big problem with this book. There is something weird going on that I don't know if I can quite explain. We'll talk about it as we get into it, but this is one of those books. You look at this cover and you're like, all right, this looks pretty cool. This is John Byrne art. And then you open it up and go, oh no, this isn't John Byrne. It's 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 kind of a shame that John Byrne never got to uh well, never wanted to do any of these events. And from what I understand, I feel like it was him that didn't want to do it. All right. So I'm just going to kind of skip through the issue and stop at various points that to me, I feel like I need to talk about. For example, this whole scene with Owen and Marsha in his apartment or their apartment, they don't really say if they share this apartment together, uh, but they're watching Hogan's Heroes as the Beyonder crashes into the hills just outside town. And uh, there's actually a moment. <laughs> there's a moment here where Owen, get, keep this in mind, all right? Owen Reese is the Molecule Man. He is literally the most powerful character in the entire, well, I won't say in the entire Marvel Universe. He is definitely the most powerful character on Earth. And he may be the most powerful in the universe. I mean, he he has control over all molecules. What are we and everything around us made out of? Molecules. I mean, the dude has godlike powers, but he's kind of a, well, he's not a coward. He was a coward. He's got some mental issues, some self-doubt types of issues. He, uh, he, he, he kind of came into his own at the end of Secret Wars. He kind of opened up and realized just how powerful he is. But Instead of using that power to conquer the world or anything like that, he goes home and watches Hogan's Heroes with his girlfriend, Marsha, who was also in Secret Wars. She was actually converted or transformed into her superhero identity. She was given superpowers in Secret Wars by Doctor Doom. And for some reason, she is watching TV with Owen wearing a leotard and leg warmers. Now, for most of Secret Wars, once she was kind of introduced, minus the leg warmers, she pretty much, when she was not Volcana, because when she turns into Volcana, she is basically like a magma woman with fire coming off of her. But when she's not Volcana, she spent all of Secret Wars with this leotard on, and it appears she's still wearing it. I don't know if she doesn't wear normal clothes or if she just got done working out, I don't know. But Owen Reese, the Molecule Man, probably the single most powerful character in all of the Marvel Universe, is watching Hogan's Heroes with his girlfriend, Marsha. And he actually says, Look, boy, I love it when Colonel Clink sits on his hat. Ouch! I see nothing, nothing. <laughs> yeah, that's what the most powerful man in the universe is doing. And I don't think he's more powerful than the Beyonder. Again, I'm, I'm really kind of confused by Owen. I feel like he is. I feel like he, he literally is 
the most, again, powerful man in the Marvel Universe. But that is power that is only potential because he doesn't really use it. He doesn't really want to be the most powerful man. So he doesn't, I mean, again, he just, he just wants to hang out with his wife or his girlfriend and uh, watch the TV. But their TV is interrupted when the Beyonder crashes into the hills and flying chunks of debris, which is just big chunks of earth, go flying past their window. And uh, Marsha changes into Volcana to try and blast some of the big chunks of earth out of the sky using her lava powers. But as Owen points out to her, um, Marsha, darling, maybe you shouldn't. And points out uh, that she has set the apartment on fire. <laughs> but of course, you know, he's the molecule man. He just simply puts it out. Now, the thing with him is, and this is why I don't understand if he doesn't quite know how to use his full potential. Maybe his imagination isn't, maybe he just doesn't have the imagination needed to use his full powers because I would think someone who is the master of all molecules would just simply make the fire end, you know, just shut it off, turn the fire off, turn the ash back into uh, what it was before. But no, instead he makes the kitchen sink the faucets in the kitchen sink stretch out from the kitchen into the living room and douse the fire with water. Just seems kind of silly. Professor X wakes up in Muir Island, this house of Mara McTaggart's. And uh, this, I believe, is probably our first moment where we are, I guess, not directed to other issues to find out what's going on. I mean, he's injured. He's laying on the couch. He's got a blanket over him. Moira is trying to settle him down so he doesn't make his injuries worse. And it just tells you in a editor's note that he was injured in recent issues of the X-Men and the New Mutants. So I don't believe those are tie-in issues. That's just something that happened previously. That's what put him in the what it would be his status quo for the beginning of this story. And so if you want to know how he got injured, you can go check out those issues. You don't, you don't need to know that, however. The scene with Captain America on the airplane is really funny. This is actually him. They're, 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 okay, all right. This is what happens when I, when I try to talk, when I don't let my mind slow down a bit when I try to talk. But one of the issues that will follow Secret Wars 2, number one, is Captain America, number 308. Now, I know that I'm not... Again, reading the tie-in issues, but I was reading Captain America at the time. And unlike the previous event, Crisis on Infinite Earths, when I, I wasn't even reading the crisis at the time, I did literally have to go into that event with really no knowledge of what might be happening in the DC universe at the time. However, here with Secret Wars 2, while I haven't read a lot of these issues since back then, I was reading most of the tie-ins along with the main story. Again, I don't think I was purchasing these books. My older brother was, and he was letting us read them. But I, I did have a subscription to Captain America. So I do know when it comes to issue 308 that it is a Secret Wars tie-in. And I actually read it within the last two or three years. In fact, I did an episode of Just Another Fanboy talking about Captain America number 308. It was back in September 2019, September 11th, and uh, it was episode number seven. So maybe I'll put a link in the show notes. I don't know. We'll see. We'll see how I feel. But issue 306 had Captain America in England teaming up with Captain Britain. And then here in Secret Wars 2, number one, Cap is on an airplane going back to New York. Now, Anybody reading this issue that may not know what Cap has been up to up to this point may be asking, why is Captain America riding in coach on an airplane? Why doesn't he, you know, don't they all travel on their Quinjets and junk? And he had actually been magicked out of New York to London. And so now he's got to kind of figure his own way back to the States. And then by the end of this issue, Secret Wars number one, he, he leaves to, to continue his journey. And then we see him 
next in Captain America 308. He goes to the West Avengers compound to get a, a Quinjet. It is a Secret Wars 2 tie-in issue, but literally the Beyonder is in it for two, maybe four pages. He is uh, invisible and he's watching Captain America. And I think that's the issue where he changes his form to look like Captain America or look like Steve Rogers. Now, I did say I wasn't going to really be reading and talking about the tie-in issues, uh, but when it comes to these issues that I've already read and read within the last couple of years, it's going to be really hard for me not to get into any of that information. But back to Captain America, though, on the plane, it's, it's really quite funny because he's there in coach. And all the passengers around him are pointing and they're talking about him in front of him. They're not whispering. They're not trying to hide it. He's just sitting there and literally like the guy right across the aisle from him. And then the guy, like the guy across the aisle and one seat up, he's going, but what would Captain America be doing here? And then the guy right next to him, right across the aisle, couldn't avoid business glass, I guess. Who cares? And they're just all like one lady's like, he looks so young. And, and uh, one guy's going, I heard he was frozen on ice for years. And another guy says like Walt Disney. And uh, he gets the summons or he gets the warning from Professor X. That's a really nice panel. Um, very cool piece of art there with how, how Al Milgram portrays this mental summoning coming from Professor X. Uh, but Captain America has to go up to the, the the cockpit and have the pilots reroute the plane to L.A. And the one of the pilots is like, basically, look, you're Captain America. All right. Um, you actually saved my whole platoon from being overrun by the Nazis back in Normandy. So, yeah, I'm, I'm going to do this for you because you're the man. You saved my life, blah, 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 and all this stuff. But then he says, but... uh." Will you go back and explain to the passengers after I make the announcement? And sure enough, all these passengers that were super enamored by him and amazed and starstruck, they are all just pissed off now because he is he's making the plane land in Los Angeles. And that just kind of screws up all their plans. And, you know, he's trying to explain to them that there is a uh, potential world ending emergency that he has to look in on and they just don't care. and. That has probably got to be the single most honest piece of writing in this entire issue because ain't nobody going to be on that plane going, oh, well, Cap's got to go take care of something that might end the world. We better let him do what he does. No, everybody's pissed off at him. He, he went from being, you know, a, a beloved celebrity to a, to a hated power monger within a few panels. I thought that was pretty funny. Um, one thing they didn't mention in the synopsis, and I forgot to add to the synopsis, is when we see the Beyonder in Owen's apartment sitting on the couch, he's got like uh, this, this outfit that is, is made up of different outfits, you know, different costumes. You can see Iron Man in there and Doctor Doom and Claw and Captain America and Molecule Man, the X-Men. You've even he's even got Storm's hair coming out of the top of his his helmet mask. That's a combination of Iron Man, Doctor Doom, and Cyclops. It's it's a hilarious looking thing. And not only is he just sitting on the couch, he's actually smashed the couch to bits. He apparently is so powerful that he is super heavy. Um, I don't know if I can go any further without trying to explain the weirdness of the art. Again, it's not bad. It's it's Al Milgram. He is a uh, he's not a flashy artist. He is very he gets the job done. The art in this issue, though, it's there are so many word balloons and text boxes and like Marvel superheroes, Secret Wars that came before. It appears that most sentences, if they don't end in a question mark. Or in, in, you know, the three periods or whatnot, or a couple of dashed lines, they end in exclamation points. It, it's just one of those things that Jim Shooter does. It's, I guess he's trying to build the, the excitement, amp up 
your experience of reading this by making it seem as if every person in this book screams at each other. And I'm looking at one page here, the page with the Beyonder in his weird mismatched outfit. And he does say, I desire dot, dot, dot to understand. And that ends in a period, but that's the only one. That's the only one on this page, at least, that doesn't either end in a question mark or an exclamation point. And I just find that funny. But back to the art. I don't know if it's because there's so much text on all of these pages that it made it difficult for Al Milgram to try and fit in the artwork in all these panels. So everything just seems small. The figures all seem small. He just, he, it just seems like he's trying to pack way too much in each of these panels. And there are very rarely any kind of close-ups on any of these characters. There's, there's a few, but it's mostly just kind of these faraway shots of multiple characters in each one of these panels. And, you know, I'm looking again, I'm looking at the page with the Beyonder sitting on the couch and it's smashed. And there are eight panels on that page. The next page has six. The following page has five and then six. I think five seems to be the fewest number of panels on a page. There's just a lot of panels, a lot of art. There's a lot going on. There's a crap ton of text. It's just, it's it's very weird. It, it leaves you with kind of a, we, a a really weird feeling just looking through this book because again the the only word I can describe and I'm not good at describing art. You know the old joke. I may not know much about art, but I know what I like. That that that's kind of like me. And the only thing I can really say to describe the way the art makes me feel in this book is that everything just seems small. I don't, I don't know any other way to put it. Now, when the Beyonder goes to Hollywood and he meets up with this guy, Stuart Cadwell, I feel it needs to be noted that Stuart Cadwell, the character, is a parody of Steve Gerber. Now, this is the creator that worked for Marvel who created Howard the Duck. And at the time, he was kind of speaking out a lot against Marvel. He had a, uh, I believe he had a lawsuit or he was working through the court system to try and get ownership of Howard the Duck. I, I don't know if that had been, if that had already happened at this point, but I know that around this time, he was very outspoken about creator rights. And he was doing a book called Destroyer Duck, in which Jack Kirby provided the art. And in fact, Jack Kirby was also such a champion of creator rights that he agreed to do the first issue for free. Uh, But the second issue has a uh, kind of a smackdown of John Byrne. There's a character in that issue called Booster Cogburn. And the title of the issue, issue number two, is Booster Cogburn, The Dislocated Spine. I guess uh, John Byrne had made some kind of comments. He he did an interview with uh, some comic magazine and no, 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 no. It was he he had written an editorial for a comic book magazine. I, I, I don't remember which one, but apparently he kind of called out Steve Gerber for for, you know, daring to fight for creator rights. And I guess at some point in this editorial, he says that uh, he is happy being a cog in the Marvel machine. John Byrne is. And so. Steve and Jack create a character by the name of Booster Cogburn, who uh, views himself as a company man. And I guess this guy, his um, spine would dislocate from his body when he was killed to be transplanted into a new clone body. And that was that was supposed to be this is John Byrne. He's a he's a company man and he, he had his spine will go whichever way it needs to go, I guess, to. Uh, please the the Marvel machine, I guess. I don't know. But Stuart Cadwell, then, in this issue of Secret Wars 2, Jim Shooter created him to parody Steve Gerber. He's a writer who is angry about every organization that he writes for, be it TV or comics, that try to censor him and try to tell him what to do. And they uh, all they want him to do is write violent stories for, you know, 
bombastic value and blah, blah, blah. And, and the first thing he does when he gets this power is to go destroy the NBC studios. And the name Thundersword possibly could be because Gerber was one of the creators behind the creation of Thundar the Barbarian. And it even appears that sometime later, years later, Shooter, Jim Shooter claims that Steve Gerber was actually in on the joke. He was okay with it. He was fine uh, with it and fully supported it. I don't know if any of that's true, but I feel like regardless, uh, unless it is true that Gerber was a part of the joke, he knew what was going on and he had, they had his blessing. For Jim Shooter, who's, who's, he's not just a writer at Marvel Comics, he's the editor-in-chief. So for him to kind of make fun of somebody that worked for Marvel, may still be working for Marvel at this time. I don't, I don't know. I don't remember, but it just seemed kind of untoward. Uh, the idea that Magneto is going to fly the X-Men from New York to LA in a limousine that he is moving through the air using his magnetism. That's kind of funny. The battle between the X-Men and Thundersword, again, very funny. Um, especially when Thundersword starts destroying the McBurgers restaurant because he doesn't, he doesn't like their food. And at one point, one of the employees, as, as he's destroying this McBurgers, and he's going, McBurgers, garbage! One of the employees is running away going, hey, go wreck a Burger King, will you? I'm working my way through grad school here. And uh, that was kind of funny. But again, there's just a lot. I'll tell you what, let me, uh, there's a, particular scene here that I remember thinking about as I was reading this that I was going to point out as a perfect example of maybe what's wrong with this book and uh, what I think is wrong with this issue because it's not a great issue. It's just not. Jim Shooter, you can tell just from this first issue, is trying to do way too much with very little space. Or at least he's trying to do more in this issue than the space of a normal issue will allow. And this particular page, and I'm not sure what page it is because I read these digitally. Uh, in this case, I, I bought the uh, Secret Wars 2 collection trade from Comixology, and the pages are not numbered, but it's the scene where Magneto in LA, east of downtown, goes to this arena where members of the new mutants are fighting other mutants in this, this big arena for sport and Magneto's there to break them free. And in three panels, they tell this epic story. Basically they, they fit so much information into just three panels. Let me, let me read you the text just from one panel. The it's the first panel of this scene it's got Magneto near the top, and he's using his magnet powers. He's bursting into the arena. Pieces of the arena are falling to the arena floor. There are some figures on the floor fighting. You see some people in the crowd. But again, there's, there's a crap ton of text boxes over this panel. And I don't know if Al Milgram is trying to show us the, uh, you know, a, a, a give us a sense of scale here to show us how big this arena is. But Magneto's really small. The, the, the figures on the arena floor are really small. I, one of them, I'm pretty sure is Dazzler as far as the rest. Maybe that one is Cannonball. And I, I just don't know. But let me read you the text. At that moment, east of downtown LA, in a building whose rundown exterior disguises an arena where the wealthy, powerful, and jaded come to watch mutant gladiators fight to the death a mutant whose name is spoken in whispers by men and mutants alike makes a dramatic entrance. The crowd and combatants fall silent, and all eyes are upon him as he demands that the students of Xavier present leave this place and come with him. Two of them, Cannonball and Magic, comply, bringing friends and fellow mutants Dazzler and Lila Cheney with them. Two did not comply. For a moment, Magneto ponders seizing them, but such a course might precipitate a battle against the gladiators in mass. The risk would be substantial. He chooses to withdraw, content with those he has liberated from the games on the strength of his reputation alone. That is one freaking panel. One panel with so much text just to tell us that 
Magneto shows up, says, all right, new mutants, come with me. Some of them decide they want to. Others decide they don't. Magneto thinks about making them come along with him, but then he's going to have to fight all the gladiators. And so he's not going to do it. And then they leave. The artwork only really shows you that Magneto is tearing down the roof of the arena as he's entering. That's it. There's so much more happening in this story that there is no room at all for the artwork to tell any of that story. And so it has to be told in text. And that, to me, is a big failure because your text is supposed to work with the artwork to tell the story. And in fact, I feel that a good comic book tells most of its story through the art. You should, in most cases, be able to look through a comic book and get kind of an idea of what's going on without reading any of the text. And that the text just kind of enhances what's going on because then you know what the people are saying to each other. You know where they're at. You kind of know what their motivations are and all that. And yet, there are still two more panels in this scene. And the second panel is, is them arriving at the limousine after they, the, you know, the, the new mutants leave with Magneto. And then the second panel is Magneto explaining to them that they don't have time to, to go back to get the, the others because they have to go take care of the Beyonders. So while I'm not a fan of decompressed storytelling, this it, storytelling is so compressed. This should have been two pages minimum, this scene. We should have seen the new mutants fighting other mutants in this arena. We should have seen their reactions when Magneto arrived. We should have seen the, the, the few that chose to go with him, you know, saying, I, I'm, we're going to come with you. And those that chose not to, we should see them telling him no. They're, we, they're just those three panels. And, and, and I'll say this as well. Like I said, it should be two pages minimum. And yet this is fit into three panels that take up a little over half of a page. That speaks volumes about the issues or the problems with this issue. And uh, yeah, there's just so much text. And if you've read Silver Age, Bronze Age books, there's a lot of text in those as well. They spend a lot of time in those books telling you what's happening in the panel, right? It's almost as if you could, you could use one or the other. You have the panel, the artwork in the panel telling you what's going on. And then you have the narration in the panel telling you what's going on. It's, it's very redundant. But I would rather have that than the text telling you the story while the artwork doesn't, really. <laughs> and that one panel with all that text explaining what happened between Magneto and the new mutants and the other mutants all happening in one panel in which the artwork doesn't really depict all of that, I think that's a big, that's a big failure. Now, who do you blame? Frankly, I'm going to blame Jim Shooter. I, I, don't, I don't know that Al Milgram really had much of a choice with this because, again, Jim Shooter was the editor-in-chief. And from what I understand, the guy thought pretty highly of himself. So I'm sure that he put this script together and he, he, he gave it to Al. And Al was probably like, um, it's going to take at least three issues to, to tell the, the story that you've scripted out for the one issue. And Jim's like, ah, make it work. Put it in one issue. Make it work. And this is what you get because of that. Now, I'm just guessing. That's all theory at this point. I don't know. I, I tried to find information about, you know, the story behind Secret Wars 2 to see if there was any insight I could find in regard to the creation of this, this uh, event. But y'all know me. You know, I don't like to do a lot of research. Uh, my research is ultimately just putting a few search questions into Google. And if I can't find it on the first page, then I may try something else. Uh, but you know, two or three, two or three tries, if I'm not finding what I'm looking for, that's, that's about it. I'm done. It, it, it can't be found as far as I'm concerned, but a lot of the X-Men here and the new mutants apparently, uh, can teleport. We get, um, First, one group of them being teleported away from the battle with, with uh, Thunder Sword uh, by Magic. That's her name, her superhero name. And then we get the rest of the X-Men 
teleported out by Lila Cheney. So yeah, they just, they fly to LA in a flying limousine, find the Beyonder and immediately leave. (laughs) They were pretty useless. Captain America, of course, goes toe to toe with Thundersword in the way that only Cap can. And then, my God, I'm just looking at this last page. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight panels. There is each panel has, I don't know, good Lord, 15 to 20% of the panel covered in text or word balloons. It's insane. And yet, super fun at the same time because it is so ridiculous. It, you know, you're probably going to hear me say this throughout this event, but there's a, again, I couldn't find any insight. I couldn't find any backstory. I have no idea what was going through anybody's mind when they put this event together. But I look at the timeline and I see, you know, Marvel Superhero Secret Wars came out in 84. Crisis on Infinite Earths comes out in 85, January to December of 85. Secret Wars 2 starts in April of 1985. Now, I don't know if from January to April, if there's enough time there for what's happening in Crisis on Infinite Earths to influence Jim Shooter in any way as he's putting this story together. I will say that the way this issue is put together and the way it reads, to me, feels very much like it was put together in a hurry. If I was to learn today that Jim Shooter had had a certain plan put together for Secret Wars 2 and then read the first issue of Crisis on Infinite Earths, read the second issue of Crisis on Infinite Earths, and at that point, the end of February was like, okay, I've got to do something different for, for Secret Wars 2. DC has raised the bar. They have created this, this obviously, just from the first two issues, an, an epic story that spans the entire DC universe. I've got to do that with Secret Wars 2. Now, I, I can't believe that that's the case because there's so many tie-in issues that I would like to think that an event like this with all the tie-in issues involved, that it would need to be planned out well in advance. But with Marvel Superhero Secret Wars ending at the end, you know, just a few months earlier, but I don't know. I feel like I have heard stories about books being slapped together at the last moment and changes being made to various storylines and whatnot, you know, at the last minute. So it, it, all I'm saying is it would not surprise me in any, in any way if I learned today that Jim Shooter had kind of a rough plan for Secret Wars 2. He'd been working on it from the moment he finished his script for Secret Wars, but by the end of February, started making just vast changes across the story to try and compete with what... DC was doing with Crisis on Infinite Earths. I don't know if that's true. That's speculation. That's that's just me just guessing. But I found this issue cluttered. I found the art small. And really, there's there's no other way for me to describe it other than small. And I I don't feel like I can blame Al Milgram for that in any way. But at the end of the issue, it tells us that Secret Wars two continues in New Mutants number thirty, Captain America number three hundred eight. Uncanny X-Men 196 and Iron Man 197 before the following month when you will get Secret Wars number two, which is what we're going to talk about next week. So if you're able to read those four issues, New Mutants number 30, Captain America 308, Uncanny X-Men 196, and Iron Man 197 before next week's episode, go for it. I'm not gonna. I'm gonna go straight from this one to issue number two. So join me right back here next week, because that's what we're doing. We're looking at issue number two. It's entitled, I'll Take Manhattan. And uh, I know that the Fantastic Four and at least Spider-Man is involved in that one. So yeah, come back next week and we'll see what fresh hell comes out of issue number two. (laughs) Uh, This was probably a really big mistake. 
Event or Else is a Stephen or Else production. Find more great podcasts at stephenorelse.com. Questions and comments can be directed to eventorelse at gmail.com. You can support the show for as little as a dollar a month over at the Patreon by going to patreon.com slash stephenrorr. And in return, I'm going to do my very best to get you and your fellow patrons episodes just like this one before anybody else. I also encourage you to rate the show wherever available and share this episode with a friend. All links will be in the show notes. There's a snort. <laughs> uh, that may go at the end of the sentence. It better. Gonna do a little recording, but I got a new cat that keeps jumping up on the table. His name is Manny, and... Ow, flip! Oh, man, he just dug his claws into my back. Little scamp. He is our new cat, and he is adorable. He's about 10 months old, um, and he is just now, today really starting to explore and hang out with us and not hide under the steps. And of course, he's been, he's left me alone all day. It's only now as I start recording that he decides to start messing with me. Anyway, let's get started here. The Beyonder <clears throat> voice is cracking right from the beginning. The Beyonder, jeez, man. What's up with your voice, brother? Oh, let's try this again. And Captain America goes for a... <clears throat> and Captain America... Good God almighty, what's wrong with your voice, son? Myra McTaggart and the members of the New Mutants rush into the room and Professor X tries to get Moira... <clears throat> Moira. Moira Mc... Moira. 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 Moira McTaggart and the... Moira McTaggart and the members of the New Mutants rush into the room and Professor X tries to get Moira... And Professor... <clears throat> Moira. Realizing the potential threat. Go settle down somewhere. Realizing the potential threat that the... Hiya. Cap, using his status and it... In the meantime, the... We got... In the meantime, in between time. I'm, I can't even remember how that goes now. I listen to it every week. In the meantime, in between time, this is around comics. I don't know if I'm doing that right. Anyway, when Thundersword strikes the cars, he sends debris flying all over the area. He sends... When Thunderstorm... Blah, blah, thunderstorm! Ho! Oh. Noticing that the kids have vanished, Wolverine rushes at the Beyonder in a fury, and with the X-Men trying to stop him, leaving Captain America to battle Thunder... He is definitely the most para... The cat has now, the new cat, Manny, has now decided to come see me again. He's up on the table and he's walking on the keyboard and trying to get into my lap. And he just jumped onto the floor in a really weird way. Stop. Okay. Anyway. Stop. Okay. You need to stop. Go on. Apparently I have to stop for a while because this cat will not leave me alone. <laughs> Go away.